I give so much free food away that I'll, I'll give free free food away basically at the drop of a hat. Like if someone has a nice, if someone has a good T-shirt or they laugh at my joke, then I'll give them free food. Or if they say it's their first time and they're really excited, I'll probably give them some free food. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Anna Husel, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard. Today in the show, we have Brooks Headley, chef-owner of New York City restaurant Superiority Burger and the author of a new cookbook. We also have an interview with vegan chef and author Chloe Coscarelli. But first, Anna, what did you and Brooks talk about? We talked about vegetables, of course. We talked about fast food. We talked about how Brooks doesn't really like taking vacations. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I've never not seen him at his restaurant. He's had it open for several years now. Every time I go in there, he's working. Um, Brooks also brought a lot of really awesome focaccia into the studio. Everyone was so excited to see it. Yeah, I think that box lasted like 15 minutes. There were literal shrieks as we opened the box. That's great. Here's Anna with Brooks Headley. We're here today with Brooks Headley, who is the owner of Superiority Burger and the author of the Superiority Burger Cookbook, The Vegetarian Hamburger is Now Delicious. So on taste, we've written a lot about imitation meats, which tend to be very polarizing. Either people are totally disgusted by them or they love the kind of uncanny weirdness of them. Do you like any imitation meats? Do you ever cook with them? Do you ever seek them out? Yeah, no, I actually love them all. Um, Even though the whole point of the restaurant, Superiority Burger, is to be a reaction to that in the sense that it's not, like, we don't use any fake meat of any kind. No, no, like, you know, processed wheat protein, no seitan, no texturized um, soy protein, anything like that. at the same time, I also really, really kind of love fake meat, the sort of absurd grotesqueness of it. Um, What's your favorite fake meat? Uh, honestly, it's – I guess I, I, don't, I don't necessarily eat that much of it anymore, but kind of like from, from memory from like when I was younger, like certain things like I really loved. Like when I was, when I was younger, I lived in a group house in D.C., and the only thing I ever actually cooked was um, – Boca burgers that I would cook at like two o'clock in the morning. There was a a lot of Ethiopian markets around the corner from where I lived, so I would always like put lots of Burberry on it, and then I would deglaze the pan with um, just like cheap balsamic vinegar, and that was like my favorite sort of like fake meat preparation. To the point that I had a roommate, and his uh, girlfriend would always go, "Is this the only thing this guy knows how to cook?" You know. <laughs> For you, was it about approximating a burger, or was it like totally its own food category? Um, well, I was a vegetarian for a really, really long time, so that was just like that was just something to eat. And I guess I liked the texture of it. the The flavor was never that awesome, which is why I doctored it up heavily. Um, and uh, but in terms of like. What we do at the restaurant, it's like kind of the opposite of, of that, even though, I, like I said, I, 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 I kind of love it. Like I even kind of like Impossible Burgers, even though there's a lot of problems with Impossible Burgers. Like what are the problems? Like the problems are it's not going to save the world. And it's it's like the Silicon Valley thing that it's just there's sort of a, a grossness about it, the whole thing. Um, and it's also like completely, totally, utterly processed, you know. You can't pick it apart and find any sort of real food in it. It's, you know, it's processed wheat protein and coconut oil and, you know, it's not recognizable as real food. That saying, you know, I kind of dig it. I noticed in the head notes for the superiority burger in the book, you say the unlikeness to the real thing is canny. So really, the superiority burger is not trying at all to approximate meat. It's kind of like... No, no, it's not at all. Um, Only in the sense that it's something that's on a bun with typical burger toppings, you know. Right. What makes a good veggie burger in your mind? Like, what were the types of veggie burgers that you sought out before you started making them yourself? I, I mean, it just has to taste good, honestly. So that was when I started, like, developing the burger like years and years ago it was just how to make it taste as good as possible without and be good texturally without 
necessarily trying to exactly mimic meat, you know. So that was always the main concern because a lot of times vegetable burgers tend to be either like too squishy or too completely lacking in flavor but really good mimicky kind of texture wise you know so for me it was just about making something that tasted really good and then kind of making it work on a bun beyond that I found that a lot of the things I never I only worked pastry in most in every restaurant where I worked before superiority burger so any sort of like savory knowledge I got I gained was basically just from watching other people do stuff in the kitchen so there's a lot of techniques and ideas that go into the the burger patty at the restaurant now that are things that I basically just watched like at Del Posto, like people making bolognese, people making meatballs, stuff like that. Like I would I would watch people doing things and be like that. All right. How could I do that? And then how could I use a sofrito like that or how could I use some sort of version of vegetable cooking like that eliminate the meat completely smash into a patty and put it on a bun so on the total other side of the scale from del posto are there elements that you have that have kind of inspired you about fast food restaurants or are there like fast food restaurants that you like secretly or not secretly (laughs) or that you've kind of like borrowed ideas from i guess like as a kid i lived in i grew up in baltimore and my grandmother lived in um Western Pennsylvania. So when my mom and I would go to visit her, we would take this one route through Maryland. And there was, it was like the last exit before you would get to um, West Virginia, right into like Western Pennsylvania. Um, It was a stop and there was every single, at least to my like 10 year old mind, every single fast food restaurant all in one strip. And it was probably one of the more exciting times of my life every time each direction going back and forth so I've always kind of been obsessed with like kind of like the way fast food restaurants look and the the aesthetics and the imagery and stuff um which one was like the holy grail to you as a 10 year old kid I think honestly I think it was our it was a combination of Arby's and Arthur Treacher's because of, I think it was like the color scheme of both places. It was very different. What is Arthur? Arthur Treacher's was like, if I remember, it was like fish. It was like fried fish. And like, it was just everything was deep fried. They must have just had a bank of fryers. And I didn't even eat fish when I was a kid. So I'm not sure why I liked that place so much. And maybe I didn't even really like the place. But I just remember that on the tables they had bottles of malt vinegar, which I was really, I thought malt vinegar was pretty cool. So. So like French fries with malt vinegar at Arthur Treacher's in this like, and like it wasn't a McDonald's, it wasn't a Burger King, which were the fast food places I was used to. Um, there was something sort of exotic about it, I guess. So, in the book, I noticed a lot of the dishes kind of were inspired by regulars who come in a lot, or kind of experiments that you tried out and got feedback from regulars. Was there a process like that in other restaurants that you worked at, like? Del Posto, for instance, did you have much of a sense of feedback from the people who are eating your food? Um, not really, not as much. Um, it was the thing about Superiority Burger is it's all, it's the dining area and the kitchen is all one room. So I see people eat and I see people's reactions immediately. Um, and I can even go talk to them, like right as they're eating it. I can interrupt them. in in their second bite and ask them like what they think of it. So are people honest? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, probably sometimes no, but you ever uh, just witness like a total grimace as someone tries something. Yeah. Usually the grimaces occur when people come in and since we don't particularly advertise the fact that it's vegetarian, someone that orders something, especially one of the burgers, it takes a bite, realizes it isn't real meat and then grimaces. Um, that's also kind of fun too, because usually the reaction is either it's 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 sort of complete disdain at the whole situation. Like they're usually really upset. Do you and have a lot I, of angry Yelp reviews from people who are? Expecting? You know, I've never once looked at our Yelp page, so uh, I, I have I have I have no idea. Um, I'm going to go on there after this. All right, yeah, you, should, you, all you can let me know because, <laughs> but um, we we actually went we've gone through um, phases where. Because it doesn't necessarily say vegetarian or vegan anywhere on the, it's like 
basically on the I mean it's on the menu but it's very small um I guess we just assume people know and if they don't know then kind of like that's fine too you know but when people have come in and they're looking for real meat because they just they see a sign that says burger we used to try to convince them like oh you know you should just get one anyway you know and Usually, fifty at least fifty percent, maybe even more, seventy five percent of the time, they're disappointed because they wanted a real burger, and this it's what we're serving isn't in any way a real burger. It's its own thing. So now, when that happens, we just send them up the, up the street to Whitman's, which is like a real burger place, like like half a block away, rather than try to like convince them and change change their way of eating. And you know, it, it usually works out better that way. So for sure. Do you miss making fancy desserts? Do you feel like you're still making fancy desserts at Superiority Burger? I mean, yeah, we make, we change the ice cream, the gelato and the sorbet flavors almost every day. And we're constantly doing like special desserts, cakes and stuff like that. So I've never missed it because I feel like I've been doing it perpetually. The difference being it's not in like a fine dining dessert. It's just everything is kind of smeared around to fill up a plate or in a tiny little spot. On a big plate with lots of white space, whereas if we make a cake, we just griddle it off, throw it in a paper boat, and put the ice cream and the compote on top of it. If that stuff was a little neater and on a white plate, you could totally serve it in a fancy restaurant because it's the. I mean, we're we're buying the same the same fruit from the same purveyors as all the fancy restaurants at the market. So, do you um, think that the fancy plating is like kind of bullshit, or do you think there's a value to the, to that? I have a I have a like a I have a very uh difficult not difficult. I have a very complicated relationship with fancy restaurants because that's where I learned to cook. But at the same time I hate the fact that only basically only wealthy people can eat at these places. It's not a restaurant for most people. So that part always kind of bummed me out and I guess still kind of bums me out. But at the same time I learned how to do a lot of stuff working at fancy restaurants that I wouldn't have learned otherwise so i don't think it's i don't think it's bullshit i think it's bull maybe for me personally i could never do it again i know a lot of people uh chefs that kind of come from the fine dining world and then open up a more a less formal place like a lot of times it seems like they want like a kind of like a fleet of different kinds of restaurants like a fancy restaurant a less fancy restaurant a less, less fancy restaurant and, a, and like a fast food restaurant, you know? Yeah, to show um, that they can kind of do it all. Like I, yeah, fill out their portfolio. Like, yeah. I don't ever, uh, and if, if it was up to me, I would never put any food on a plate ever again. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily feel the need that, like, putting this something on a plate and making it beautiful in like a fine dining sense gives me any sort of greater satisfaction than making delicious food and kind of cramming it in a paper bowl. So. Do you like to eat off of plates at all? Like when you go out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got I got no beef with plates. In fact, a lot of <laughs> a lot of the um, uh, events we've done um, promoting the book on a, on the tour will be at places where they actually do have plates. So we'll end up putting we'll make our food in California or in Chicago and we'll put it on a plate, which always kind of cracks me up because to me it's like meant to be in like a paper thing, you know. I've noticed that there's definitely like a strong anti-capitalist vibe underlying the whole book. And I was curious to know if that's if it's kind of hard to continue that that like political position while running a restaurant, which is like a business at the end of the day. Sure. And and like <laughs> do those set of politics make their way into how you run your restaurant? Oh, for sure. Um the whole the whole point of opening the restaurant was to create a a place that would have you know really high quality food high quality not in like the artistic sense or whatever but like high quality ingredients um you know ambitiously thought out you know we we have a tiny little kitchen but we do tons of stuff in the kitchen in terms of like different specials and and even like the main menu things we you know we spend a lot of time sourcing the right kind of canned tomatoes or the right kind of imported tomato paste or fresh garlic or whatever like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world to run um, a restaurant that operates like that with 
therefore requiring a pretty large staff in order to put out all that food and then selling the food for as inexpensively as possible. But we, I mean, we just had our third birthday, so we've lasted three years in as a restaurant in Manhattan with only six seats and not selling any alcohol, which even if we close tomorrow, that's kind of a victory. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm knuckleheaded enough that I will go forward and as long as possible doing that before I can't, <laughs> which I don't know when that would be. So, Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about, it seems like the creative process that happens at Superiority Burger involves kind of everyone on the staff, right? Yeah, yeah. Does everyone kind of generate ideas? Sure. It's great. I love it. It's the, it's what I meant to do at the beginning um, was that, you know, a lot of, uh, at least from like a, the perspective of the public, a lot of restaurants, it's like the chef who's the genius, who's coming up with that he's so smart or she's so smart that they come up with everything and that's just not true because i don't know of any restaurant like that there's always sous chefs and line cooks that are coming up with stuff and like maybe that makes it onto a menu in a more mutated form not directly from the uh, the cook or the sous chef but it, those that happens everywhere you know so it's always been kind of my goal to like you know, kind of to give people credit where it's due because they are like making food at the restaurant. It also makes it really fun too, because depending on um, who happens to be working in the kitchen at the time, things go in different directions, which makes it more fun for me. It makes it more fun for our regulars. You know, it just it makes it really exciting because you just never know with somebody you hire on new what's what they're going to bring to the to the to the into the kitchen like and a lot of times we we really only have i think like three maybe three or four people myself included that only cook mm-hmm. everyone else kind of does everything like they'll season salads they'll work the register um everyone kind of everyone kind of does everything takes out the trash mops the floor does the dishes are there recipes in the book that you had nothing to do with that were totally someone else's brainchild I would say that there's 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 definitely a couple like that, but for the most part, the recipes came from everyone kind of working together. Like it would a lot of a lot of the thing a lot of the recipes would be somebody would come up with something, we'd taste it, it would go through a couple of different mutations, and then it would eventually make it onto the menu. And when make it onto the menu at the restaurant, often means not necessarily like the permanent menu, like it becomes a special that we run as long as it's seasonally available, or maybe it becomes a thing that we run, we have kind of in our arsenal forever, but uh, it's definitely like a fully collaborative thing, like where even like someone will come up with an initial thing and maybe we'll run that for like a week or a day. And then that'll mutate into a bunch of different things that turn into other things. We, at the restaurant now we, um, it's kind of funny because we have like this there's all, all a bunch of different pieces of paper and register tape that are taped to the ceiling and they're all basically variations on the same salad that have <laughs> like one thing was taken out and one thing was added and they're all different like mise en place lists and like recipe lists that have like like the way it exists now it's a a salad of chicories with a rhubarb vinaigrette but it started you know 3 or 4 months ago as something totally different so are there ever dishes that you come up with that your staff totally vetoes and they're just like, this is a terrible idea? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that, hap- yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> um, usually not for dessert things. Dessert things usually just kind of work. Like when I worked at Del Posto and other places, like I, I tended to do a lot of like, you know, I do like celery sorbet or like an eggplant dessert where, whereas at, at Superiority Burger for the desserts, my concern, maybe it's just because I've grown up a little bit, but my like something like raspberry sorbet, like really good raspberry sorbet to me now is like one of the best things ever. Whereas before I may have seen that as being like kind of like this pedestrian thing, um, which it can be if you're at 
the kind of restaurant where you're just buying frozen puree and turning it into sorbet, that's what it tastes like. But if you get really good raspberries or you get not that great raspberries in the dead of winter that are frozen and then like doctor them and cook them and make them into something beautiful, then raspberry sorbet can be, you know, this like ethereal, beautiful thing. Whereas like for savory dishes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes things just won't work. Like we had this thing that was basically a bunch of different kind of like disparate components that just never worked that we ended up using for other things. Like I think we had like, it was like some pickled raisins and then we had these carrots that we had gotten that were like a little gnarly and then we, we roasted them and then pickled them and then roasted them again. And then there was, we had, I think maybe some like, this was like before in the, like the earlier part of the spring where we had all these things that potentially could have been good, but all together just in a tasted. Con- no, this was like in the more, in the savory oh, okay. room, like a salad. They just didn't taste right. They didn't taste right together. So we just never used it. And the, the key thing that we, that we think of a lot when we're coming up with salads and savory side dishes is, um, to make it, if it feels like family meal, then something's wrong. Because if it's like, especially if you have something with rice, like rice and some beans and some vegetables, more often than not, like just doesn't come together. And it tastes like something that you should be serving for family meal. Not that family meal is bad, but just isn't kind of nuanced enough to make it onto the menu. So that's usually the, when we're kind of testing out things and we get to a certain point, it's like, it still tastes like family meal. It still tastes like family meal. And and then maybe we take something out and add something and then, oh, okay, now it tastes like a, now it tastes like a composed salad. So. Hmm. I think every time I've been into Superiority Burger, you have been there. Do you ever get days off? Are you ever not in the restaurant? Um, right now we're talking. <laughs> yeah, you're not, I'm not in there right there. now. So. Yeah. But do you, like, when's the last time you took a vacation? Um, I'm not really into vacations because I need, I really, I need, I've always, my whole life, I've need, needed real structure. If I don't have structure, then I just I'm I'm just terrible. I'm just bored and potentially self-destructive. So having lots of structure is good for me. Um, I also this is my first thing that's all mine. You know, it's not all mine. I have partners, but it's my it's my restaurant. And it's not that I don't think my staff can handle it when I'm not there because they totally can handle it when I'm not there. Because even when I am there, sometimes my brain is like in. 35 different directions, maybe working on something that I haven't even told them about. So I'm almost not even there anyway, because they've cooked everything else. But I, for the most part, I just don't want to miss anything. Because when I'm not there, like we're open, we're open all day long, every day, we used to be closed, two days a week, and then we were closed one day a week. And now we're open 1130am to 10pm every day. And I really, really like being there, because I never know what's going to happen. Like someone's going to come in that I really would be psyched to try out some stuff on or, you know, just weird things happen on our block. Like our block is this, this awesome block of ninth street between Avenue A and first Avenue where, you know, it's this kind of beautiful shady tree line block with just tons of different crazy characters live on the block. You know, it's like a really fun, it's fun. I mean, like in order for me to not be there, I have to have something really, really good to do. That's better than me being there. Do you still go to shows? Like, what's the last band you saw play? Oh, my God. Yeah, I almost never go to shows anymore. It's not because I don't like music or... I mean, part of the reason that I opened up the restaurant was to give free food to people in bands, which we do all the time. Anyway. um, (laughs) Is there, like, a list of bands who always get free food? I give so much free food away that I'll, I'll give free free food away basically at the drop of a hat. Like if someone has a nice, if someone has a good T-shirt or they laugh at my joke, then I'll give them free food. Or if they say it's their first time and they're really excited, I'll probably give them some free food. Um, but a lot of times, um, especially I've noticed specifically Sunday morning, like right when we open, a lot of times a band will come in, and it won't necessarily be a band that any of us know. But we have this game where we try to figure out what what band it is because you can always tell when it's a band that comes in because it's usually between four and six people and everyone pays separately because they everyone if you're in a touring band you have your per diem for the day and you're not sharing that with anyone because like any other group of three people usually kind of pays all together or whatever um so probably like looking grizzled and tired and not speaking to each other (laughs) oh sometimes yeah sometimes yes sometimes no um no it's always fun and then 
we have a pretty good staff of like cooks and counter people. So I'll usually be like, all right, who was that? Like who played last night? Who's playing tonight? Like, and then, cause it might be a genre of music that we're not even familiar with, you know? Right. Um, who are some of the bands who have come in? Like who are some of the bigger ones? Um, I mean, it's not necessarily like it's the, it's a lot of people that I know from like years past who are still playing in bands or, um, a lot of times they're bands I've never heard the music of that I just know of, the, that they exist, you know? And it makes me happy that they come to the restaurant because, you know, I support and I will support even if I stop going to shows for good, which is – I'm getting kind of close to that, mainly just because I'm always at the restaurant. But, you know, it's really – it was a very important part of my life to go and play a show in, you know, Lexington, Kentucky to five people. That's like – that's a, that's very important to me, especially and to go to be in a band that nobody cares about, that you're only doing it. It has nothing to do with commerce. It's just about you wrote these songs. Maybe you put out a, a tape or maybe you put out a seven inch and you're going to go on tour, not to promote it or support it, but because that's what you have to do. Um, and I really like that. So when bands like that come in, of course, I'm going to give them free food because I know what they're doing. And, and, and it's, it's, a, you know. I would have loved to have gotten some free food in, when I was doing that. So, um, But the, the last, the original question, the last show that I went to was actually this band, Corrales. They're a um, black metal band from around here. And I actually, like, I'm friends with them, and they were playing a few blocks away. So, And they were playing a few blocks away at 10 p.m. So they came in earlier in the day to eat, and they all basically looked at me and went, went you have no excuse not to come to the show because your restaurant will be closed and we're playing a few blocks away. So I actually did go to What's the show. What's the venue in the neighborhood? Um, I mean, there's a well, there's a new venue that just opened up called Coney Island Baby, which is on Avenue A. And that's like literally like a block and a half away. Um, and then other than that closer venue, like a... Uh, Mercury Lounge isn't that far, and Bowery Ballroom isn't that far. So when it comes to, like, people in bands coming to the restaurant, I am in full support of feeding them as cheaply and freely as possible. So Hopefully some of them are listening to the podcast <laughs> and will come in for some yeah, yeah. free snacks. Last question. Just while you were working on this cookbook or your last cookbook, what were some cookbooks that you were thinking about like what are the cookbooks that you have cooked from over the years or that have kind of inspired your work i mean i have a lot of favorite cookbooks um the last course by claudia fleming is probably my favorite cookbook ever um why is it your favorite cookbook ever um because to me well number one it's it's insane that it's out of print there's so many like terrible cookbooks that are available and that's not that's one of the one that's not is like insane to me like it's just I remember because I bought it the day it came out. I had never eaten Claudia Fleming's desserts at that point. I was working in D.C. I had just started cooking professionally, so it was very. It was like it was this very important book in my kind of cooking career. I remember buying it at a Borders in D.C. and like walking outside and sitting on the ground on the sidewalk and like flipping through it and just being super excited. And then proceeded to basically steal every single recipe for the next, like, five or six years at every different consecutive restaurant where I worked. What are the um, good ones? Like, what are the recipes that you've made over and over again? Um, I mean, her cream cheese ice cream recipe is totally killer. There's this um, kind of, like, citrus twill that she twirled into a, a tube to make basically a cannoli that she filled with mascarpone cream. Um ripped that one off so many times that, that so many times that it, I, I deviated so far from the actual recipe that it probably didn't have any resemblance to the original recipe. That book's also great because the photography is really beautiful. It's, it's, it's really timeless to me. When did um, it come out? I think it came out in two, either 2000 or 2001. I'm not sure. One of the, like right around there. I also like a, a lot of cookbooks that I really love don't necessarily have any bearing into the way of the way that we cook at the restaurant. Like I love the Joe beef cookbook, which definitely has nothing to do with what we do at yeah. the restaurant. I love all of the river cafe cookbooks. Um, I like them all for th also because there's so many of them and they're so beautiful. The photography is beautiful. The recipes are simple. They're so British and like, even like the, the way that the margins and, and fonts are. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's, they, it's almost like they, it's the same cookbook too. 
but I, and I like that. Like I, I know there's a lot of people that are like kind of professional cookbook putter outers that put out the same cookbook, and that's a bummer. But for some reason, the River Cafe books, like even the the next one would come out, and it would be like pretty close to the last one, and I'd be like, ah, it's totally fine. It's still awesome, you know. So right. Really like those. In fact, I really kind of wanted the the Superiority Burger Cookbook to kind of feel like one of those books, and a lot of the aesthetics were kind of stolen from that in the sense that like it was just a photo of the dish and then as simple a recipe as possible with a very, very short um, head note, like describing either the idea that went into it or something from the dish. Um, the River Cafe books are take it to an extreme because some of the head notes are like one sentence, you know, and I remember like flipping through it as, as I was writing the head notes for this and thinking like, oh, I'm being, you know, I'm just, I'm being too wordy, you know, like how, how can I take more out and still have it be as powerful as something like that, you know, so. So hopefully this means that there will be a lot more superiority burger cookbooks. Oh, yeah, we like have. Like River um, Cafe. Even though, like, putting out this cookbook took, you know, a long time and there was a lot of, like, issues in in terms of, like, um, dealing with the publisher and, and, and frustrations that when it was all finished, I was like, all right, that's it and no more. Like if, if I ever do another cookbook, you know, I don't know, I, maybe I'll, maybe I won't, but that only lasted like a day. And then the next day I already had a list of, I think there's, we have something like 117 new recipes that aren't in this book. So the, the cool thing about the restaurant is it's, we're constantly like coming up with new stuff and like, it, it'll get to the point where like, I'll feel like, ah, I think we've mined the possibilities of like salad vegetable side dish things that don't that aren't french fries and then we'll come up with like some new idea or something or i mean one of the coolest things like our manager cheryl isn't a cook at all like she worked in a bunch of really fancy restaurants as a server as a kitchen server as a general manager but we have this cucumber dish that's on the menu now and the sauce for the cucumber dish is something that she came up with that is this amazing sort of like slow cooked sludge of zucchini that like weird zucchini and um, garlic and olive oil and you use that as a sauce on cucumbers yeah we, it's it's cooked down till it's no longer there's no pieces anymore it's just we that's why we call it sludge wow so we use that we chill it down after we make it and then basically dress the cu- the raw cucumbers i mean using decent cucumbers from the market um and then the variation that we had it was kind of funny because i think the variation that we had yesterday was kind of the best version of that and she wasn't even around because she was off she didn't even get to see it but we dressed the cut the cucumbers in oblique chunks dressed it with the cooked zucchini sludge and then had really thinly sliced carrots from carrots we found at the market and then we got some shishito peppers that we were trying to figure out like Dave, who works in the back, we're like, what should we do with these? I got them. Like, like I, or- I, I ordered like 10 pounds, but I don't want to just like blister them on the griddle because that's what everyone does. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to do that either. And we're just sitting there, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? And he's like, well, let's, let me, I'll pickle this bunch and then we'll see what they're like. And then they were, he came up with this amazing pickling liquid. They were delicious. So then that got tossed into the cucumber thing. Um, and then we also happened to find some really good shiso at the market. So it's cucumbers with the zucchini sludge and chopped up shiso and the pickled shishitos and sliced carrots, which shouldn't really work, but all together it's this beautiful, like really bright, really fresh tasting salad, even though the underlying feeling of the salad is cookedness because the zucchini is like cooked to death, you know. So it all comes it all came together really nicely. And that like I said, that was that dish is full on a collaboration between like there's like four of us that added parts to that, you know, so Wow. Well, I can't wait for your next book to come out so I can make some zucchini sludge. <laughs> <laughs> zucchini sludge on fresh cucumbers. Thank you so much for coming in, Brooks. Thanks. Thanks for having me in. Here's Matt talking to vegan chef and author Chloe Coscarelli at Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. Thank you. Thanks for braving the weather, right? You've oh got my you gosh. Drive here, right? 
I just, I don't know whether to like thank you guys or apologize. I just feel terrible. Everyone's so wet, but yeah, it's going to be fun. And I'm so happy you guys came. Yeah, it's cool. I'm actually stunned. So thank you guys so much for shocking me. Yeah, we got a lot of friends in the room. I mean, so like, I want to like, this cover here is amazing. It's like one of my favorite book covers like ever. For oh, sure. really? Be- well, I mean, it <laughs> has a really, it has a really good person. Like, it shows you. But I want to know, like, are you? You're kind of always like that, because like I've seen you on television. I've like met you a few times. That's like your go-to, right? Like, you're very a happy person. Sure. Like, yeah, right I like here. to think that. Um, <laughs> no, it was very natural. Like, I had actually earlier in the week, like, gotten my hair done, and and then for this actual shot that we chose was a pose where I had just the photographer actually just like threw my hair in a, up in a bun for me and I did my own oh. makeup and then we're like oh that's someone it looks natural so yeah it all worked out what's going through your head right there like what, do you, um, what, what is the dish I, I it's like really it's a nice. kale pesto okay. uh kale pesto pasta it's like I think it's five ingredient kale pesto pasta um so yeah it's really easy you just throw five ingredients together in a food processor and it comes together really fast. It's one of my favorites in the book, actually. Sometimes I put it on pasta. Sometimes I spread it on toast. So, yeah. I love it. So tell me, you were on the Today Show yesterday, right? Yeah. And you're like, you're like thinking like, I was on the Today Show. Yeah. Yeah. And And there was one of the hosts, one of the, the, the gentlemen who was on the show, I can't remember who it was, was like, this glaze is sick. He was like so into it. It was a glaze for a, a, cauliflower, a cauliflower wing. Yes, we made cauliflower wings. Um, with, it has like an apricot sesame, sweet, sticky, spicy glaze on top. Um, and they're super easy to make. And yeah, they were gobbling them up. It was really fun. So is this like your style, taking like these comfort food classics like a, a buffalo wing and doing a, a vegan version of it? You know, bringing a lot of the flavor, but obviously not having the animal products. Is that- yeah, I think that's a really great way to like bring people into veganism is start with a dish that it's like a flavor profile that they're comfortable with or that they love, um, but then put like a twist on it. Um, so that's what I did with the cauliflower wings. And that's that is one of my go to recipes. Um, you guys are going to love it. I hope you guys try it at home because it's great for like game days or just for kids um it's really fun so you you fry that you you blanch then fry the cauliflower and you batter it is that right correct yeah we put it in a batter that's made with seltzer water and rice flour um and then just coat it in a really flavorful glaze that's on the sweet side um traditional buffalo wings are a little bit spicier but i like it sweet no it was really good and you add seltzer water which is kind of the key to yeah it keeps really... the batter really light and fluffy so you don't have like a a heavy uh coating around the cauliflower so what are some other like go-to dishes that you have in this book that kind of have that vibe of like it could be a party dish like a buffalo wing but it's like your spin on it well give me one more example yeah let me tell i have a copy of the book oh, shut up. I yeah. flip through. okay so in terms of some of my favorite recipes yeah. in here, um, one that, um, well, definitely the nachos. The nachos are really good. I love this picture on the uh, on the title page because they're just super messy and yeah. um, really like a comfort food. Um, and so that's a recipe that my recipe testers are like, I'm making the nachos again. How do you I'm making get the, nachos the creaminess again. that you, you know, you have a lot of cheese and nachos and you have meat sometimes. Like yeah. there's a lot of the, animal. The cheese we make out of a, um, like a cashew base. So basically blending cashews in water, a little bit of nutrition yeast and yeah it's delicious let's talk about nutritional yeast because i I actually have that circle that's like my third question like ask chloe about nutritional yeast (laughs) we just did a big story about nutritional yeast on taste and really definitely and okay you might be teaching me a thing no i don't know i I can't say i'm a it's not not even expert, but I, it's one of these. I've seen it several times mm-hmm. in your rest, like in, in looking at the book. And like, what does it do to like a dish? Like, what does nutritional yeast add? Because I think a lot of people are a little bit skeptical. They think it's like brewer's yeast. Or like, isn't this how you make right. beer? It's actually not. It's a very flavorful. <laughs> so thing. when I um, actually was like a first a vegan, which was about like 14, 15 years ago, um, to get nutritional yeast, you had to go to like a vitamin store because nutritional yeast is a pure B vitamin. Vitamin. Are there any vegans out here that remember having to go into like a vitamin shop for it? <laughs> yes, we have one in the back and one in the front. Um, so it was like this really weird ingredient. You'd have to buy a big tub of it for like $30, $40. And now they sell it 
a Trader Joe's like next to all the spices, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this amazing substance that you can use basically to create this like cheese like color and um, texture. It's like kind of nutty and cheesy and bright yellow. Um, I love it. Some people don't like it that much because it does have like a, a taste that is um, it's not cheese at the end of the day. So I think the most successful way to use it is in a quantity where it adds that, you know, the yellow and the cheesiness and the nuttiness. But if you add like one tablespoon too much, you could push it over the edge to taste like nutritional yeast. So there's a really fine line with how you use it. But if you use it right, it's an amazing ingredient. Yeah, it's a great explanation. I think it's really, it's like MSG, but not MSG. It's got this like kind of like special... Like it adds savory elements to cooking. Magic and fairy dust. It is yeah. fairy dust. <laughs> but what are some other uh, ingredients you talk about like before veganism was so mainstream that you'd have to go to like your local GNC or health food store. But now like what are some other important ingredients that you see at Trader Joe's? That. Yeah, I mean, I love tempeh. Um, does anyone like tempeh Shout here? Shout out to tempeh. Shout out to tempeh. Okay, you got me in the back for all of these. <laughs> yeah, tempeh is one of my favorite ingredients. And if it's used properly, again, um, a, a lot of vegan ingredients can be misunderstood if they're not used properly. And then people like my boyfriend, say to themselves, oh, I hate tempeh, just like a blanket statement, because they once tried it where it was like done terribly. Um, so I try to, in, these, in the recipes in this book, really show people that if you use these ingredients properly, they can actually be really delicious. So one of my favorite recipes in here is a sriracha tempeh alfredo. It's like a creamy fettuccine alfredo, but with like a spicy sriracha tempeh that kind of like bleeds throughout the whole dish and gives like a spiciness to the fettuccine alfredo. And it's so good. But I remember I left a pot on the stove. My boyfriend walked through and he tasted it. He was like, mm, this is delicious. What is it? And I was like, it's tempeh. Um, and then he was like, you could tell he was just at such odds because he'd been saying that he hated tempeh, but then he just said that he loved Wait, it. He, he <laughs> didn't know you were cooking with tempeh. Is that what you're saying? He, he didn't know what was in the he pot didn't know what was in and the said pot. he loved it. And then when he found it, it was tempeh. It was like he was so confused. But yeah, definitely if you guys have friends or family members that think they hate mushrooms, tempeh, seitan, nutritional yeast, I promise you these the recipes in this book can like trump haters of those ingredients. So let's talk about your boyfriend. I like he's like in the book. I've seen it in the head notes. Like, is he a vegan himself? He's not a vegan. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. First question: Why is he not a vegan? Um, What's his explanation? I mean, my mission is really not to like you know convert people as much as it is to just open people's eyes to veganism. And I really believe. I mean, I'm a very passionate vegan for about 15 years, but I really came into it my own timing and realization and I know that for other people that's the most effective way to become a vegan so I don't ever really want to like rush someone else's process on their own timeline I do believe that veganism is the food of the future so I know we'll all be there at some point Um, but I really want everyone to make their own choices and feel good about them and I I do feel like um, vegan cuisine is just so delicious just on the merits of how delicious and flavorful the food is that um, I feel like just on that alone people are starting to incorporate more meatless meals into their diet and I think that's wonderful I don't think it has to be like an all or nothing overnight yeah. I feel like we don't talk about meatless Monday anymore because like it's people are meatless more than one day of the week right totally it's yeah you don't need thing. to wait for Monday anymore no way back to your boyfriend <laughs> though I want to know what so what are some of the dishes that he actually like you you make for making your household often that yeah. he really loves well I cook almost every night for like at least 10 to 20 people and it's just like me and him and my roommate that live there so I remember when he right. first moved in he came home and was like oh, are we having a party tonight and I was like oh no this is every night I'm testing. Um, so yeah, he, he's he's really hungry. So he just eats whatever I make him, and he loves it all. Um, because if the food's good, it doesn't matter if it's vegan or vegetarian or or not. <laughs> so this is actually your fourth book, but this is like the big book, right? I mean, what were the three books prior, and how is this book like? Is this like your magnum opus? Is this like your book of like a certain style versus other books? Yeah, um, that's a good question. A lot of people have actually been asking me that. Um, I'm really excited about this book because it's my first um, hardcover, um, which is new for me. And yeah, it's um, I, it's been a few years since I've put out a book, and so I really put a lot of Um, love and time and years and testing recipes over and over and over again for this book. Um, And I think it's really like 
um, an expression of kind of where I am right now and the current state of veganism. Um, so I'm just super excited yeah. for people to try my new recipes. The current state of veganism is a really good point. Let's talk about that because we're not, I think we're moving on from these like meat proxies, even though we've talked about this like fake buffalo wing, but like people are cooking, like they want to taste the tofu, right? You're, are you feeling that? Like people want to actually not make fake meat all the time. I think we're at a point where people really want to know more about the food that they're putting in their bodies. Um, and people just want to be educated. Whereas at one point it was, you know, nobody really cared, but now people are asking questions. Um, and so I think it's great that when you're cooking vegan food, it's just such an easier conversation about where your food came from. And so I think people are attracted to that. Are you like friends with all the other vegan chef celebrities like the Thug Kitchen crew, Issa, Moskowitz, like all that? Are you guys like part of a yeah, society? I love other vegans, yeah, especially right. amazing ones doing amazing things. Uh, love Issa's new restaurant here, yeah. Modern Love Brooklyn. I don't know if any of you guys uh, right there. Oh, what, hand by there? hand. How many have been there? I love <laughs> So what? good. We've got like 10, 15 yeah. hands up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's amazing, amazing vegans doing so many great things. So it's just, it's wonderful to see so many people popping up across all industries, not just food right now, which is really cool. So let's talk about your new restaurant, because I think that's something that you're in the press often for. You were at by Chloe, but now you're at in Miami, you're opened up your a new restaurant that I think will there'll probably be more than one at some point. Yeah, we'll see. I'm so just having fun. Yeah, it's called Chef Chloe in the Vegan Cafe. And um, if any of you guys ever stop by Miami, definitely come visit me there. Um, we're cooking some really fun, like tropical themed uh, Miami um, inspired dishes and desserts. Um, yeah, it's just been a ton of fun mm-hmm. meeting people, vegans in all different places. I, one of the recipes I stopped on yeah. was the teri- the Hawaiian teriyaki sliders. Yeah. Like, is that, is that, are you serving that at your restaurant in my, uh, you say tropical and I'm like, eh. yeah, good guess. Yeah, um, trying. no, I'm not, but I made that today at Twitter. I went to do like a, um, vegan lunch for their headquarters in New York oh. and we made those sliders and it was really, really fun. Some people were, you know, everyone who works there was basically just like coming through the cafeteria. And I was like, oh, do you want to try these sliders? And some people grabbed it. And I was like, um, they were like, oh, is it is it meat? And I was like, no, it's vegetarian or vegan. And they were like, oh, never mind. But then oh, I was no. like, no, try it. And then they tried it. And then they come back for a second. Oh, so like, yeah. That's like makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> we're seeing this trend. Like there was a cantaloupe burger a few weeks ago. I don't know if you saw that trend. Oh, I missed Somebody's that. making like, has anyone seen this like, like a cantaloupe burger? No, it was on the like on the blogs. Okay, well. Anyways, this like idea of like sounds juicy. It does. It sounds pretty cool, but like the idea of these like fruit burgers is pretty interesting to me. Yeah. What's tw- what is the Twitter headquarters cafeteria like? It, it sounds like it is it f- cool? Is it nerdy? Yeah, it was no, it was amazing. There's just like screens of Twitter feed going on everywhere, oh, really? so you're really hit with the news. Um, but yeah, it's cool. <laughs> Oh, I, I want to talk about your father. Okay. Is, is he here? Can I he's get it? He's here. He's around the corner. <laughs> he's <fa-> hiding. <laughs> your fa- like okay. So this guy. So your father is a is a famous director. Like the Oscars were just a few days ago. You make um, not just horror movies. You you you're the director of the Beastmaster, which was came out yeah. in like, 1982. Uh, you're the for and the and the Phantasm series. Yep. You were a dwarf creature in Phantasm Four. Is that correct? I was. Does anybody here watch horror movies? This we have one. Oh, right. Two, well, you, three. You're standing okay. next to the director of the Beastmaster, right there. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up on like my dad's sets for horror films, and they were independent films. So it was a hands-on family effort, and I was the right height at a certain point <laughs> to be these little scary monsters that run around, jump on people, kill them, and pump like alien blood after they get shot in the head and so it's very off-brand but i what? used to um no. <laughs> that was my old what career. alien blood made out of on a set i just remember this one point where i had to run away it was like the end of the scene where i was running off camera and i had to squeeze something and there was yellow blood floating as i was running off oh <laughs> So, so as a kid, were you were you like not fearless? Like your father's making these horror movies that are like some of the most intense horror movies of the era, and like you're probably have some horror like 
like there's probably some props around the house there's or? a lot of props around the house <laughs> yeah my mom put a sign on the front of her house that says the haunted mansion and there's like you know motion activated monsters all around um so yeah i got pretty used to it so what did you learn from your father you're obviously your father was an entrepreneur you are a very you're a successful entrepreneur so what do you how did you what did you learn from your father and your mother growing up and are they involved in your business now yeah i learned so much from my parents i think watching my dad really break through an industry where you know no one had really paved the path and he had his own ideas for these movies that were really creative and it wasn't like recreating movies that were already out there really inspired me to know that it's okay to do something that's never been done before and if you believe in yourself and you know follow your dreams and get your whole family to help on the efforts like he did that's what i do and my parents were down in miami with me serving cupcakes and washing dishes the past couple weeks. Um, So yeah, family business, family efforts, always the way to do things because they're the only people that actually care about you at the end of the day. That's so special to have that as like a family unit, you know, like to have everyone together during these, during these moments of definitely stress, these, these successful moments. And now you're selling cookbooks. It's pretty awesome. Family here. One last question about cooking. So like you have avocados in a lot of places especially in the baked goods and the dessert section. And talk about, I think I've never really made a lot of baked goods using avocados, but tell me like, how does that work? Like how does avocado, how does an avocado work to like sub for butter, sub for cream? Yeah. So avocado I think is like nature's butter. Um, It's amazing. Like I can't even imagine why anyone would put like butter on toast when you put avocado on toast or butter on a bagel when you put avocado on bagel. Um, So it's my favorite ingredient in the entire world and I like to use it for everything. And I like to be unapologetic about it. I've definitely been in situations where people are like, well, not everybody likes avocado, so you should dial it down here on this menu or in this book. And now I've hit the point where I'm like, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to put it everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) So I hope you guys like avocado. Sorry if you don't. What's a baked good that uses avocado just to give us that example? Yes, we do an avocado cupcake in this book um and it really the consistency it adds it's actually like a chocolate cupcake but you add avocado into it and it just makes it so moist um and just really rich mm-hmm. and naturally thank you very much thank for, you books are yeah, magic actually, Chloe. this place is magical yeah <laughs> The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>